Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. Once again, this is your host, Brian. Today, BNP R4, being free means you gotta trust. Well, once again, the timing of the theme of this episode's reading of the two chapters of my novel have aligned with current events. It seems freedom, and attempts by outside forces to restrict it, is on both the mind of our protagonist of the book, Paul Lucas, and the minds of the collective as we navigate the stormy seas of COVID-19. No matter what personality type framework you use to examine me, from MBTI to Enneagram to astrology, I'm a person highly motivated by freedom. And that means the shadow side is I'm a person who worries about things that may restrict it. But I want to leave most of the pontificating on this topic for the episode proper, as today I have a treat for you. Not only the two freedom-focused chapters of the novel, but a reading of a short story I wrote a few years ago. It's a dystopian satire set approx 130 years in a future titled The Bell Valley Authoritarian Fire Brigade, which I'll link the text to in the show notes. Oh, and I used approx deliberately there, but you gotta listen and listen carefully to the story to understand that particular joke. Okay, in the background, you may be hearing the soft, steady roar of the local river near my house. You see, I'm trying to make up for some lost time due to my annual early April change of season funk and some rain to reach my monthly goal of 1,000 kilometers by bicycle, which means every day this week and next, I'll be cycling 23 kilometers to eat a picnic lunch while commuting with nature before cycling 23 kilometers back home where I'll be pondering human nature, mostly via the internet. And that leads me to conclude the post I shared on my Facebook page this morning, which I got from another excellent podcast, Jessa Reads Soberish, which again will be in the show notes. Here it is. A surveillance state is what happens when people point their perception at a constant longing for security to be provided for them from outside of themselves. That was from Jessa. To which I added, that said, Jessa shared this just before, just because everyone else wrote some shitty timeline for themselves, you're not going to have to participate in it. It literally does not matter if they get 5G, if they put microchips in people, if they make you get a vaccine, whatever. If you've chosen a different narrative for those things, they are just not going to restrict you. And I wrote, yes, I know this. But it's great to hear from someone else, as it reduces my fear-based reactivity to the surveillance state timeline. Go ahead, put a microchip in me. You might learn something about how the mind works. After all, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. There you have it. Okay, folks, next up is the short story, followed by one of my favorite tunes about freedom, George Michael's 1990 hit appropriately titled Freedom, and then the novel. Thanks, as always, for joining me. And enjoy the show. The Bell Valley Authoritarian Fire Brigade by Brian Winchell. You know, fuck the fire brigade, that goddamn bunch of trouble stirring rabble rousers. For all that is supposedly right and good in this world, Wilson said, twisting the end of his twisted goatee with a bit too much relish. Ow! Better be careful how you treat that thing, Willie, said Loyal Leo, Wilson's best friend and, once again, cellmate. The whole process would likely play out as it always did. Stew in jail for a day or two, 
eagerly awaiting their call but knowing there was neither rhyme nor reason as to when it would come, get called, walk in shackles for what felt like hours to the court, go through the arraignment process to find out just how much the judge is in league with the fire brigade, and pray you got one of the all-too-rare anti-fire brigade crusaders, and then get released. The only question was, why did it have to play out at all? Everyone knew it was unfair. Everyone had their stories. The funny thing was, this time Wilson didn't know his story. How did he get here? It was up to the third cellmate, Carlos Rogers, to tell him, because unlike Loyal Lilo, who often sidetracked into tangents, Rogers could spin a yarn. How much do you remember? Rogers asked. Well, I drank some of your brother's moonshine, and last thing I remember, I was outside. Smell of grilled rat in the air, salivating, and then darkness, Wilson said. And now, here we are. Wow, that's a major blackout, boss, Leo said. I'll have to tell my brother to be more careful with his brewing process, Rogers said. Or at least give us a warning, Wilson said, holding his throbbing head. Anyway, what happened? Well, you weren't the only one the moonshine worked its magic on, Rogers said. It was one of the drunkest and loudest block parties ever. Yeah, Leo said, laughing. And by the end of it, the house was trashed. It was already trashed, Wilson said, drawing laughter. There was never a day when they didn't make fun of their crumbling, decrepit house, which had been built over 100 years ago during the homeland century and hadn't had much upkeep since. By the time I crashed, the lot was a mess too, Roger said. Anywho, Raji, let's make this a test for you, Wilson said jovially. Let's see if you can get through the story without any more anywhos. Twenty bits says you won't make it. I'll take that, Loyal Leo said, causing Rogers to give him a worried look. What, man? I got faith in you. Uh, thanks, Rogers said. I guess. Any oops, almost blew it right there. Sorry, Leo. Get on with it, Wilson said. Okay, so I passed out, and next I know I'm on the couch in the lot, with Leo shaking me awake and a coffee in his hand. And just as I'm about to grab it from him, we hear it. That awful engine growling from down the street. Red truck of destruction coming like hell on fire. And the sirens blaring like nobody's business. I give Leo a worried look as it pulls to a sudden stop about a block away. And I'm hoping it's them doing their one good deed for the day. Cat rescue or something. We see some of them making real quick to the back of their truck. Then it looks like they're pulling something out. Something big enough that two of them are carrying it. Now, I don't see so good no more. But Leo here says he's looking to aim something at us. That's all the prompting I need. So I die behind the stoop of the house, Leo on my heels. We got a decent hiding spot, but we'd feel safer just about anywhere else. Suddenly, that thing they aiming at us lights up like a big firecracker, and we see this thing, a missile or something, with smoke billowing it out of its tail, rapidly approaching, and boom! The couch I had just been crashed out on bursts into flames. Here Rogers stopped and it seemed he was choking back tears or something, which was not a common thing for him. Finally, he looked at Leo and said, I never did thank you. It's just lucky timing, Leo said. Only reason I woke was because I heard what I thought was a rat scratching behind the bed, and I was going to catch it and surprise you guys with breakfast. Well, whatever it was, Roger said. Thanks. Any shit. Back to the story. So, we know how this is going down, and are looking to get inside. But them boys were too quick in that red demon truck of theirs. Before I can get one foot up the steps, I feel one of them, real strong-like, wrapping around my waist and pulling me down. 
and I see two others have got Leo. And then, two more go into the house. Nixon, I know, they're carrying you out, boss. And you still sleeping. At this point, I know we are fucked. Because they just got that we're in the mood to fuck things up look in their eye, you know? Any uh, way. Damn, another close one. They bring us all in front of their commander. A real slick-looking dude with a brown, pencil-thin mustache that twirls at the end. And as he's twirling it, he says, So why'd you guys set this fire, eh? You know that's a violation of Fire Protection Code 38? That's a very serious offense. You do know that, right? Now, wait just one minute, I tell him. We was just... Now, now, Pencil Stash says to me. Don't get all up in a tizzy. We're just going to take you boys down to the station and work this out there, all right? Come on. Seems all nice now, but I know this is a trick. That's why I lay down the law. I ain't going nowhere with no crazy-ass fire chief who goes around shooting missiles on the couches and blaming it on people standing nearby. No, sir, Bobby. Of course, this leads to a struggle. And they, like I said, they is too strong for me. So they win in the end. But I did kick one of them in the nuts, which was satisfying. Anywho, someone knocks me on the head. Next thing I know, I'm back here with you, bozos. And that, Wilson said with a smile on his face, will be 20 bits, Leo. Such were the stories that made up the lives of the vast majority of the citizens of Bell Valley in the year approx 2146. Somewhere along the line, people stopped counting time as precisely as in the past, and some joker in the Department of Time decided approximately his abbreviation should be intentionally misspelled. Gotta love government humor. And, unfortunately for them, the Bell Valley Fire Brigade had recently received several large crates of equipment from the Fire United Corperica Boys, and their intentionally crude acronym was stamped on the side of the crates. These were the guys, and gals, who went to foreign countries and started fires, and then blamed those living there for them, so the Corpericans had an excuse to take over the country and steal all their shit. Of course, it wasn't always like this. It all started back on the tenth day of the first month of the year approx 2101. Until then, fire brigades, or firefighters as they were called then, waited in their quaint red fire stations for the station phone to jingle, and when it did, they'd drop their cards, porn, or whatever was in their hands, and move, perfectly orchestrated, into action to extinguish the fire they were being called to. That's how it had worked for hundreds of years, and that's how people figured it would work for hundreds more. But then it happened, the day that would forever be remembered as the day everything changed. A small fire on the top floor of the Thomas Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress that seemed so minor a troop of trained chimps could have put it out. But something went wrong inside that fire, or, if we are going to be honest to Betsy truthful about it, something went according to someone's dastardly plan, and the fire exploded suddenly killing 20 heroic firefighters. Instantaneously, the political spin doctors got to their spinning, and next thing you know, they were blaming the people inside the library, saying they started the fire and fanned the flames until it became too hard to control. The crazy thing is, nobody, or at least nobody outside of the so-called conspiracy media, bothered to ask why those people inside the library would want to do that. The tall tale was just accepted at face value. It became an unarguable matter of fact, this idea that the citizens were so wound up that they were starting to torch their own shit. Gotta hand it to those nefarious spin doctors. 
They were very good at their job, and they created quite the national firestorm, pardon the pun, with fingers pointing this way and that, and nobody wanting to take the blame, the buck never stopping anywhere. Nobody claimed credit for the fire, and no one ever will. But there was one spin doctor, the father of all spin doctors, or the witch doctor, as some of his enemies called him, offline and in private, of course. Well, I have it on good authority that he was the father of this lie. For over a hundred years, the corporate states of America, sponsored by, ah, hell, fuck it, the list is too long to recite. Censors, come at me if you must. Anyway, Corperica had been unofficially following this thing called the shock doctrine. They'd used the massive power of their military, the soft power of economic policies, or both, to go into countries around the world, fuck shit up real bad, and then come in and save the day for the people. This was all for a great cause, they'd say, democracy or some such lofty idea, but it was really for a great profit at incredible, for them anyway, interest rates. So why not try the shock doctrine in Corperica? I mean, they'd basically been doing a version of it to the inner cities with the war on some drugs for over a century, so why not give the fire department the authority to employ the shock doctrine? Sure, there'd be objections from the do-gooder firefighters who wanted to actually fight fires, but such people could be shut up, mostly by convincing them this was the ultimate in job security, in a world where jobs were increasingly hard to come by. Besides, they'd be given a lot of impunity over where and how to start the fires, and they'd have other perks, too. And you'd change the name. Firefighters would become members of a fire brigade, and with a word like that attached to fire, who could say whether they should start fires, put them out, or both? Of course, there were still holdouts, but it wasn't too hard to find ways to blame the fires on them. No one knows how many spent the rest of their years in jails somewhere, but we do know it didn't take long for most of the firefighters to get with the program. Meanwhile, the holdouts could easily be replaced by all those ex-military folks who needed work because the global wars had so wrecked the world that there wasn't much left to destroy. Besides, military people had the added advantage of already knowing how to blow shit up. None of this was made public at the time. After all, a guy doesn't earn the name The Witch Doctor because he's performing his rituals in public. Nope, this was behind-the-scenes manipulation. But once he announced it to his trusted advisors, the idea quickly gained steam and, well, the rest is history. Though it's certainly not the sort of history one will read in a history textbook. Flash forward 45 years, many of the places where the average worker drone slaved away had been decimated, and this was where the plan had recently begun to fail. It wasn't a decimation. Folks of Colperica had always been masters at coming up with ways to destroy shit. What they weren't so good at was putting things back together. That seemed so much more boring to them than fucking shit up with fire. What they didn't consider was that after a steady decline of natural resources since the civilization peaked in the early years of the homeland century, there just wasn't that much shit to build stuff with lying around anymore, and they were starting to run out of stuff to destroy by approx 2146. Still, they had their priorities and orders from the top, and those remained more or less the same. Why waste resources on building things when you could use those resources on new weapons that blew shit up so pretty? 
It's been over three days, Wilson griped, his goatee now mangy from all the nervous tugging he'd been doing with his increasingly dirty fingers. What the hell's taking them so long? Don't worry, boss, Will Leo said. I'm sure it's just some paperwork got mixed up, you know. Do I? Do you what? Do I know? I don't know, Leo said. Do you? You're the one who said it, Wilson said, looking at Leo, whose face remained confused. Never mind. Anyway. Anywho, Rogers said. I think you're right to worry, boss. I don't think we were getting off so easy this time. Nah, man, nothing to worry about, Leo said. They never keep losers like us in here this long unless it's a paperwork error. Okay, smart guy, Wilson said. Let's say you were right. Simple paperwork error. That's true. For all we know, they could have forgotten about us in here. The two men were silent. Makes sense, Wilson said. I mean, we didn't get breakfast this morning, right? In fact, Leo, when was the last meal? Loyal Leo was also a lush who loved to eat. Uh, two days ago, right after we first got in here. Well, fuck. Mystery solved, Wilson said. Paperwork air my ass. They flat out forgot about us. Nobody said anything. But what did they have to talk about now? They were all performing their idiosyncratic nervous habits. Wilson, the goatee tugger. Leo, the nail biter. And Rogers, the foot shuffler when suddenly Leo stopped mid-nail-bite and boffed himself so hard on the forehead it left a nasty red mark. I can't believe it, he said. What? Wilson responded, with little enthusiasm, for Leo's sudden inspirations usually had to do with remembering a childhood memory that had nothing to do with anything. When I was a kid, Leo started, my dad would sometimes take me camping. This was shocking news to Wilson and Rogers. After all, Nature was dangerous. Everyone knew that. And spending the night in it? No one in their right mind would do that. Just to be safe, though, the caretakers of Congress had outlawed visits to nature to kick off the start of the security century. Are you kidding me? Wilson said. No, boss. My dad said I needed one day know how to survive in nature, Leo started, and then jumped to his feet. And that may just may mean a way out of this mess. And the next thing Wilson knew, Loyal Leo, who'd always run second in command, took the mantle of leadership. Pile your sheets here, pointing to the middle of the room. Pillowcases, too. Rogers looked at Wilson to get the go-ahead, and Wilson merely shrugged and started to take the sheets off his thin old mattress. Meanwhile, Leo had gone to the corner of the room where, for some reason, a stack of twigs and branches was piled up. A big smile spread across his face as he found two twigs and suddenly yelled, This is going to work! Still not sure what this was, Wilson and Rogers continued to pile their sheets and pillowcases into the center of the room. Here goes nothing, Leo said, and he started to rub the twigs together so quickly that Wilson thought they'd merge into one twig, and suddenly, what was that? A wisp of smoke, a delighted laugh from Leo, more smoke, and then an orange spark, and, yes, fire, Leo yelled gleefully. He then took the burning twigs and put them under the sheets, which began to burn, and before long, the room was filling with smoke. What the hell are you doing? Wilson yelled. Leo pointed toward the ceiling, where a small dot could barely be made out through the smoke. Wilson still didn't get it, but suddenly, the dot started flashing and making the worst racket. Beep, 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 beep. What the fuck? Rogers yelled, covering his ears. They'll come see what's going on now for sure, Leo yelled. 
doing a stupid little jig that Wilson thought looked ridiculous, but Wilson was also excited about the prospect of escaping that cell, and for a moment, the plan made perfect sense. So the three men locked arms and began to dance around the fire, goading it to keep burning. And burn it did! Burn it did! The alarm beeping, someone would come. Someone beeping, dancing, burning. But after a few minutes, they could dance no more in that smoky cell, and no one had come, and the flames were dying. What now, wise guy? Wilson said, glaring at Leo. How should I know? Leo said. I thought it'd work for sure. Rogers had just enough gas left in his tank to do something drastic, but he had no plans, just frustration. So he did what he'd often done in such situations. He went to the nearest wall and delivered the strongest karate kick he could manage and knocked a small hole in the side of the wall, falling all the way into it and out of the view of his two friends. Fucking A, Wilson said. Rogers? Rogers? Suddenly, Rogers emerged with a giddy look on his face, and it was his turn to take the reins of power. Quick, bring the rest of the sheets, he yelled, pointing at the smoldering remains of what had once been their bedding. Wilson reached down to pick a piece up. Fuck! And dropped it on the floor, shaking his burnt fingers. The fire was almost gone, and they had no more twigs, but that wasn't going to deter Wilson, who suddenly had his best idea of the day. He quickly took off his shoes and removed his socks, which he then put above the embers of the burning sheets and, poof, up in flames they went. Wilson knew the socks would catch fire quickly, because he'd watched a fire brigade torch his friend's apartment by setting fire to a closet full of socks. Only later did he learn that socks were often used by fire brigades to really fan the flames in fires, yet he'd since figured there had to be some connection between the men who owned the socks company and the fire brigade industry. At any rate, the socks were burning so fast that he only had a moment to remember all this before his hand was going to get burnt again, so instead of carrying the socks to the wall, he hurled them into the small hole, drawing on his experience as captain of their high school baseball team. Kaboom! Suddenly, the whole wall was on fire. The room was full of smoke, and it was Rogers who yelled at Leo and Wilson that they had to scoot. Blinded, Leo moved across the room toward Rogers' voice. Roggy, where are you? Roggy, here, came Rogers' voice just before Leo crashed into him. They were running out of air to breathe, so they quickly got to their feet, heading for the large burning hole in the wall. But there was a problem. Where's Wilson? Rogers shouted. Don't know. I thought he was over here. Wilson! Wilson! Leo and Rogers called in unison, but their fearless leader didn't emerge. So they began to walk around, searching the air in front of them with their hands. Wilson! Wilson! Kicking at the ground, and Rogers heard a thud, and the pained voice of Leo called out, Over here! Rogers walked toward the voice, and then stumbled over Leo and landed on Wilson, who was lying on the ground, not moving a muscle. It took all of Leo and Rogers' strength to pick up their boss, their friend from way back, and carry him through the burning walls, up the smoky stairs, coughing, eyes stinging, chest burning, everything on fire, each cautious step at a time toward what they hoped would be an exit. And it was in those moments that both felt more alive than they ever had. Nothing in this dull, crazy world had ever made them feel this way before. And it was that feeling more than anything else, more than any sense of a desire to survive, that really motivated them to keep taking those small, cautious steps up what seemed like an endless flight of stairs, only to emerge 
completely suit-covered, blood running down the side of Wilson's face, into the light of day, collapsing on the ground, breathing in the holy fresh air, and hearing something other than the sounds of a building burning down and collapsing around them. And what was that? Could it be? Yes, there were people clapping. Congratulations, Pencil Stash said, walking up to the three men and clapping Leo and Rogers on the back. And please give these men a warm welcome, everyone. Cheers echoed out from the crowd. You did it! You're with us now! Hip, hip, hooray! And Rogers looked up at Pencil Stash through hazy eyes, while Leo kept his head down, for he was trying to keep sweat from carrying soot into his eyes. Wilson, meanwhile, still hadn't moved. Now, we'll get you all back to the fire station where you can clean up and get ready for your first mission, Pencil Stash said. Gentlemen! And with that, two men for each of our three heroes emerged from the crowd and helped them to their feet, putting our heroes' arms around their necks and dragged them off to the fire station. Wilson hadn't come to that night, but Leo and Rogers were told not to worry by Pencil Stash. We've got our best men working on him, and then instructed them to simply follow the instructions of the men who had carried them to the station. So they did as they were told. After all, they'd been fed the best meal of their lives a few hours earlier. Actual fresh fish from God knows where, considering the fish in the ocean were supposed to be all dead. A delicious green salad, also from who knew where. And well, they both decided a few bites in not to question their fate for it appeared they'd become one of the lucky ones, one of the ones who wasn't constantly trying to avoid the high-tech weaponry of the fire brigade, but was going to get to actually use it. And so it was that when Rogers came to the next day, our three heroes went out in that first giddy mission, and the destination became immediately clear, their old, dilapidated house. Pencil Stash was even nice enough to let them fire their rocket launchers, and they did so with so much glee, happily destroying what had been their old shitty life, and fully immersing themselves into their roles as the newest members of the Bell Valley Authoritarian Fire Brigade.
Chapter 15. Road Trippin' to the Redwoods When the clock radio blared an update from Iraq before the birds had even started singing that Sunday morning, Lucas rolled out of bed and swiftly turned it off. War burnout had begun. He could listen a little more. Besides, he had more exciting things to think about. He was going to San Francisco. He wanted to get out of the house before anyone stirred. His goal was to be in the Redwoods in Northern California, about 10 hours away, before sundown, where he would save some money by sleeping in Terry's van. There was a secluded beach that he'd slept on several years back that he hoped he could find again, but he had to get there before dark to have much chance of locating it, and he wanted to be off the clock so he could enjoy the drive. So he prepared quickly and quietly, and hit the road just before 7 a.m., putting him in his best mood in weeks. The first several hours of the drive were on Interstate 5, a utilitarian road that was too straight, had too many semis, and not a lot of variety in the scenery. The joy of the journey was lost on such roads. So, to stave off boredom, Lucas busied himself by listening to various talk shows, but nothing grabbed his interest. By the time he reached Portland, he gave up on the radio and dug into his music collection. Because he just entered Oregon, he decided he'd listen to a fish concert from 1999 at nearby Portland Meadows. He'd really wanted to go to that concert, but it had taken place at the start of his second school year, and he was still too gung-ho about work and family to take a weekend off. He drove south into the Willamette Valley, enjoying a majestic version of one of his favorite fish songs, Bathtub Gin. By the time the jam had ended, he really started to feel like he was on a vacation, the possibilities of the week with Larry opening up in front of him. Much as he loved his family, it was always nice to get away from them for a while. But when was the last time he'd done that? He only remembered one time. He'd gone on a camping trip with a few college friends the summer he'd moved to Lincolnton. Terry had been angry at him about something then, too, so she was more than willing to let him get out of the house. He had fond memories of that weekend in the woods, and it made him wonder why he didn't do such things more often. Perhaps it was because, as a man gets older, his friends end up doing the same thing he's doing settling down with jobs and families. Working out the logistics of a weekend with the guys just became too much of a hassle. Besides that, many friends moved away, and it was hard to make new ones. This turned Lucas's thoughts to Larry. Was he ever going to settle down, or was he going to be a lifelong bachelor? Lucas knew Larry might find someone he'd want to marry, but there was a part of Lucas that wanted Larry to just be Larry, and not Larry Melissa or Larry Ashley. Plus the kids. It changed everything. Or did it? Lucas wondered how much he changed since getting married and becoming a father. And could one revert back to one's old ways? Lucas thought about these things for as long as I-5 kept going straight through the green Willamette Valley. But eventually the interstate began to wind its way up into the southern Oregon mountains, and soon he was in Grants Pass, where he pit-stopped at 7-Eleven for a sandwich, a burrito, and some french fries. All for the van, of course. Though he didn't want to get Terry's van dirty, he didn't want to take time to stop for lunch. Besides, he could clean it later. He wasn't going back tonight. He skedaddled out of the 7-Eleven, happy with such thoughts, and got back on the road. He began the part of the drive that had excited him at its outset, down Route 199, known as the northern section of the Redwood Highway. Going south on this road through Oregon and into California was an exercise in anticipation. The road in Oregon was beautiful in a subdued way. But once in the California, it became more mountainous, more spectacular, more awesome. And then, the trees! Man, those suckers were monsters! Lucas was always stunned by them, 
and if he had time, he'd stop and walk around one. But he knew the best was yet to come. He went through a long tunnel, meandered along the green-blue rushing waters of the Smith River, tall trees and steep hills guarding its edges. The topography had the effect of making a solo driver feel as though he was completely cut off from the outside world, and it was here where Lucas decided it would be a good idea to stop, stretch his legs, and find a path into the woods where he could enjoy the first of what he hoped would be many bowls of marijuana. He had been keeping the herb on the lowdown, but in his most recent phone call to Larry, his old friend promised he'd have a healthy baggie waiting for Lucas when he arrived, thus freeing Lucas to finish off the remainders of the bag he had. Unfortunately, the edge of the road was too steep and narrow and lacked turnoffs, so he couldn't find a suitable spot to stop. Eventually, he decided he'd just smoke as he drove. He wanted to be cautious, so he rolled down the windows and let the smoke out of the car. The air hadn't defeated winter. It chilled him. This was the mountains, after all. This part of the world never got very warm, so Lucas wore a cozy sweater and he'd packed his hoodie for the outdoors. The main difference between summer and winter was not really temperature, but moisture and length of the day. It was a darker, cooler, wetter place in the winter, but fortunately, this day was showing signs of summer. Fog, a frequent feature of the redwood forest, had begun curling in, but it wasn't enough to completely drown out the sun. Just after 4 p.m., he passed through Crescent City on the far northern coast of California. He was happily stoned, but even so he was aware he had to rush a bit. He figured he had another hour before he got to the area where he thought the beach was. It was cold enough that most people wouldn't be camping, so if he found the beach, he figured he'd be alone. He knew lots of hippies and West Coast pagans made the rounds in these parts, and it was pretty common to head into a spot and roll up on another van or two. Sometimes Lucas had ended up with such a group of strangers, usually sharing some herb with them, sometimes even more powerful stuff. Yes, this was trippy land, and that was one reason Lucas liked it. It was like something out of the Lord of the Rings, and Lucas felt if he used his imagination, he could find elves and Ewoks, yes, those annoying little furballs lived in these very woods, jumping out and swinging from the trees. Down a straightaway leaving the ocean behind, time passing quickly now, Lucas all of a sudden came upon the most recognized roadside attraction in the area, the Trees of Mystery. In front stood a 50-foot-tall Paul Bunyan, that iconic American hero who'd chopped down the forest with his giant axe, and next to him was his trusty companion, a 25-foot-tall version of Babe the Blue Ox. Bunyan's right hand rested on the blade of his axe, and during the summer months, his left hand waved at the passing travelers. It wasn't moving now. But suddenly Lucas had a horror-film thought. What if these giant creatures roam these woods at night? If they found someone like Lucas who chose not to contribute to the local economy by getting a hotel room, Bunyan would use his axe to chop them into tiny pieces and feed them to Babe. Thinking about this, Lucas realized he was pretty high, and he began laughing. Finally, as the giggle fit ended, he wiped tears from his face and checked his mirrors. Shit! A stormtrooper on a motorcycle looked back at him. Wait, Lucas thought. Don't panic. There's no smell. You look like a respectable, white guy with short hair for these parts. No worries. But had the trooper's suspicions been aroused by Lucas's uncontrolled laughter? Did he see it? Could he see it? Lucas drove on, tightly gripping the wheel, trooper on his tail. He stayed there and Lucas kept a steady speed. He wasn't looking for turnoffs now, because he figured if he turned... The cop would pull him over for sure. So he kept on going, and the trooper did too. 
He turned down the stereo, expecting blue and red flashing lights. Nothing. Checked the mirror. Still there. Too dark to make out his face. For all Lucas knew, he could have been one of Bunyan's undead friends, unfrozen and put into action by the darkening sky. No, he was all too real, and he had the potential to fuck up this trip real good. Any high Lucas had been feeling was now gone. Shit, where's the weed? He couldn't remember. Glanced around the car, the floor, between the seats, careful not to make it obvious in case the trooper could see his actions. Nothing. Where? 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 Fuck! A courthouse and a judge with a rocket arm hurling the book at him. He, defenseless in shackles, the book striking him hard. A dank jail cell, a horrid phone call home, an outraged Terry, her lecture, the sound of the phone slamming down in a dial tone. Suddenly, a buzzing brought him back, and the trooper pulled next to him. He looked at Lucas, expressionless, so Lucas slightly nodded. No response, only a stare. And he kept cruising along, right next to Lucas. Go on, Lucas thought. Leave me be. The trooper stayed with him, and Lucas could feel his heartbeat behind his eyeballs. Go! 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 At last, the trooper buzzed off, his red taillight soon swallowed by the fog. Shit, bastard, Lucas thought. Not fun. This is the downside of being a dope smoker. No matter that this was an area that was famous as a pothead's paradise, it was always something the law in early 21st century America held over a dopehead. We can arrest you if we really want to. Lucas decided then and there not to smoke in the car anymore. Nope, he'd have to find a spot or go without. He hadn't come on this trip to get busted for stupidly smoking dope. Smoke it smart or don't smoke it at all. Suddenly, he saw a slight break in the trees, and there it was. The road! A quick right, suspension protesting down a bumpy hill, and he was there. Just him, a small parking lot, and the beach. And just as he'd hoped, the sun was in its descent. Lucas figured he had about 45 minutes until the sun submerged into the sea, a nice amount of time to enjoy the seashore, frolic with the waves, and stretch his body out after the long drive, and have a smoke, hopefully get his high back. So he did just that. Enduring, he forgot about stormtroopers, judges, jail cells, shackles, principals, pissed-off patriots, unemployment, angry wives, all of it. He was just there, invigorating wind, tangerine sun melting into the horizon, beautific trees hugging the cliffs, and that sound. How could you forget that sound? The sea crashing onto a shore of rocks the size of fists. Crang! and the rocks dancing in the backtracking water. Swish! Wind ever blowing. Lucas dodged the waves expertly, laughing into the cool wind, sweater and hoodie warming him, worries forgotten. That week provided plenty of time for worries. This was not one of them. As Lucas was enjoying the sunset on a secluded redwood beach in Northern California, Jack Walker was reading the Tacoma Post baseball spring training report, when Jonathan burst into the house. Dad, Dad, there's something I gotta show you, he said, covering the distance from the front door to the living room in three giant steps. Look at this! Walker took a computer printout from his son's hands. It appeared to be an article with the headline, An Urgent Message from Nature. He read the story with interest. When he finished, he looked at his son, who'd been sitting motionless in the chair across from him watching his dad intently. Interesting article, Walker said, but I feel like I'm missing something here. What's the significance? It wasn't immediately apparent to me either, Jonathan said. Think about it. 
When you invited Luke over to our house, who does he bring? Paul Lucas, that's who. So? You told me that every time you've asked Luke about his time in the Gulf, he either avoided the question or answered it quickly and turned it back on you, Jonathan said. You told me you felt like Luke was hiding something from you, so you confronted him about it, and he said it was about his resistance to the war in Iraq. But still, you felt like there was something more. Are you trying to say that Luke is a Sylvanus character? Jack asked. This guy who supposedly lived inside a tree? That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you, Dad, Jonathan said. I mean, here's more evidence to support my theory. He brings Lucas over here, and Lucas tells us Luke suffers from PTSD, so he has trouble talking about his time in the Gulf. It all adds up, Dad. I always said you would have made a hell of a lawyer, Jack said, and his son smiled. But still, do you really believe this tale? If I hadn't met Luke, er, Sylvanus and Paul, I'd likely say no, Jonathan said. But if it wasn't true, that would mean they were pulling quite a con job on this reporter. And sorry, but I just don't feel like either of them has that in them. Hard for me to dispute that, son, Walker said. But also hard to believe the tale. It certainly is, Jonathan said. But I'm still inclined to believe it. Well, I'm going to follow the advice of the article, Walker said. Not make up my mind. Not yet. Not until I hopefully talk to Luke. But, for the sake of argument, let's assume it is true. If so, I can't even imagine how hard this must all be for him. So why would he do it then? Jonathan asked. Why work there of all places? And why change your name? I can't be sure, Walker said. There's only one way to get to the bottom of this. So when are you going to talk to him? Tomorrow, Walker answered. I didn't tell you this, John, but ever since our dinner, Luke's been avoiding me at the mall. He even changed locations with another guard. It seems he wanted to protect his secret. It doesn't appear he ever served in the Gulf. He's been lying to you all this time? Jonathan asked. About that, yes, Walker said. But don't be too harsh on him, Jonathan. Nobody likes a liar. But one has to discover the reasons for lying before making any sort of final judgment. Okay, Jonathan said. One more thing, though. If he's going to such lengths to keep this lie going, what makes you think he's going to spill the beans to you now? Mm, I can't be sure, Walker said. And it won't be easy. But I'm counting on something about human psychology, especially about a decent person like Luke. And that is, the longer one holds on to a lie, the more the pressure builds to let it go. And judging by what little I've seen of Luke in the past weeks, I'm fairly certain it won't take much for the dam to burst. Chapter 16. Freedom's Just Another Word Lucas went to bed early that night, as people without artificial light often do, so he woke at dawn and after a bagel breakfast in the van, bid the beach goodbye. A short while down the road, he pulled over to take a walk and soon found himself all alone in a beautiful redwood grove. He hiked up a shady, fern-covered hill, warming up before stopping to sit on a log and enjoy a morning bowl of bud. As he smoked and felt the relaxing, energizing combo which he only got from pot, he remembered his running at his school with one of the officers of the D.A.R.E. program the previous fall. D.A.R.E. was a program started in the Just Say No anti-drug 1980s by the Los Angeles Police Department, and it had spread all over America. Police departments sent officers to warn kids about the dangers of drugs. On the day the officer came to his school, Lucas promised himself he'd challenge the guy without getting too carried away, but once he started, he could hardly stop. 
Their exchange started when the kids were outside at recess, and the cop was setting up his presentation. Why do you focus so much on pot? Lucas asked. Because it's the gateway drug, the cop said. Well, if we want to go to that first gate, why not start with sugar? Lucas said. Sugar's legal, the guy said. But if your argument is that you want kids not to use a substance that is going to lead them to using drugs, why does the legality of that substance matter? Lucas asked. It just does, the cop answered, and turned his back on Lucas. Lucas was just getting started. I just think that while your motivation to keep kids off drugs is a good one, you're going about it the wrong way, Lucas said. I mean, really, by now most people know that pot is a relatively benign substance, and no amount of you preaching to the kids is going to change that. And what happens when that kid gets a little older and perhaps decides to try it and realizes that it's not nearly as bad as you said it was? Don't you think that's going to lead him to think that maybe everything you told him was a lie? And then maybe try something more dangerous? Perhaps that's the reason pot is your so-called gateway drug. You're basically ruining your credibility. Uh, look, I didn't create the program, the cop said. And statistics shows that it works. Kids who are introduced to D.A.R.E. are more likely to stay off drugs than kids who aren't. Actually, that's not true, Lucas started. But just then, Danielson poked his head in the class and asked for a moment with Lucas. Lucas begrudgingly joined the elder teacher. Danielson told Lucas that he could hear him from his room and was only trying to stop him before he said something he regretted. Looking back on it, Lucas was both thankful to and resentful of Danielson for looking out for him. All Lucas was doing was speaking simple logic to a man who was telling kids some very questionable information. As Lucas sat in the Redwood Grove remembering this, his thoughts turned to the state of freedom in early 21st century America. Was it as free as Americans bragged it was? He didn't think so. If one looked at the issue of drugs, there was plenty of evidence for just how much freedom Americans lacked. First, Americans had accepted that it was okay for the government to tell them which pills, herbs, and potions one could legally use. Even worse, Americans accepted something that even the worst fascist countries hadn't put over on their citizens, the piss test. Do you want this job? Fine, but first you gotta pee in a plastic cup, then hand that cup of hot piss over to a nurse who will thank you for it. It was absurd, yet most Americans just went along with the program, no questions asked. Former President Ronald Reagan's buddies had started this profitable bullshit in the 1980s, and by the 1990s it was almost impossible to get a decent paying job without sacrificing your pee and your dignity. Lucas had all sorts of problems with piss tests. What right did an employer have to determine what its employees did not only on the job, but in their own free time? The argument people always gave was that nobody wanted someone who had the public safety in their hands, like an airplane pilot, to be stoned. Lucas didn't either. However, people didn't think it through. Nobody wanted a drunk pilot flying a commercial airplane, but it was perfectly acceptable for a pilot to drink when he was off duty. Why did society trust airplane pilots to control their drinking? Did people really think alcohol was non-addictive, that there weren't people out there who couldn't control it? So why should it be any different for other drugs? Were they really worse than alcohol? And besides, most jobs didn't have anything to do with the employee performing a service which would endanger others if he was stoned. Ultimately, it was about trust. Lucas trusted that most people would be able to use drugs responsibly. Perhaps Lucas was naive in his trust, but he didn't think so. He'd spent enough time around people who'd used illegal drugs to notice that the vast majority could use them responsibly, just as the vast majority drank alcohol responsibly. 
you'd never be able to eliminate all irresponsible use, but current laws against certain drugs didn't stop that kind of use anyway. So why restrict the majority from choosing their drug of choice just because of a few bad apples? And worse, why imprison hundreds of thousands of people, thus destroying their lives, because they had made a decision to use a drug that wasn't condoned by society? Besides, it wasn't working. Americans used more drugs than any other country in the world, and there were more Americans behind bars for using drugs than any other country in the world. So if this so-called drug war was really about keeping people away from drugs, it was an abysmal failure. How many people, Lucas wondered, had been like him? Once in a position as family career man, they'd given away their right to choose which substances worked best for their bodies and minds. Would a truly free society tolerate a government or employer determining how a person chose to alter his consciousness? The culture paid a lot of lip service to notions like free speech, but if a person couldn't control her own consciousness, how truly free was she? What good was freedom of speech without freedom of thought? Even more, Lucas thought, a person was not only limited in how he controlled his mind, but he dared not raise any objections to this imposition. Lucas knew that there were millions of Americans who'd questioned the drug war, or even the Iraq war, for example, but how many of them felt truly free to express such thoughts at work? And it wasn't like most people in this economic system had real choice in the matter of whether to work or not. Even in a family like the Lucases, which did a fairly good job of controlling its spending and saving for a rainy day, there wasn't a long grace period when one could be out of the workforce. Lucas took in the cool, refreshing, moist air, and thought even further about why Weinberg wanted to fire him. Weinberg had said it was the profanity, but Lucas knew it was also the unpopular position he had taken. Weinberg would never admit that, because Lucas could likely keep his job on free speech grounds, and even if he somehow lost, it would very likely lead to negative publicity for the school in the town. After all, folks in Lincolnton and dudes like Weinberg often said they supported freedom, which was why they backed the war, so a guy getting fired for speaking his mind may puncture a hole in that story. And as Lucas's mind was cleared by the air and herb, he realized that the notion of America as the freest country in the world was precisely that, a story. No, freedom was just a word that was often tossed around by those who sought control and by those who couldn't trust others. True freedom, Lucas thought, meant one would have to trust people, would have to accept a certain amount of chaos, unpredictability, and, yes, diffidence. When you couldn't trust people, you would seek to control them. Where was the freedom in that? If the authorities really had confidence in their positions, they would welcome challenges to them, appreciating that no matter how solid a position was, it could always be improved. They'd support people raising objections, and everyone could hope to gain from such dialogues. Instead, the McCollums of the world were afraid people would sink their strongly held, but weak, illogical positions. So, they resorted to bullying, labeling, and punishing. All methods of control. And for the most part, it worked. For the most part, Americans let the bullies win, and the more they did so, the more they told everyone how free they were. Ironically, Lucas thought as he got up and began walking back to his car, control was a facade. As soon as they created an outcast like Lucas by firing him, what they had on their hands was a loose cannon, a man in a bind, but a man who was one step closer to living those words sung all those years ago. Freedom's just another word 
for nothing left to lose. For the past few months, the thought of losing his only source of income had been enough to keep Sylvanus Douglas going to work at the mall every day as Luke Green. It wasn't something he was happy about. It was just something he had to do. Early that Monday morning, he was mindlessly doing his rounds near the back of the mall and thinking about his finances and future when Walker's voice broke his interior monologue. Got a second, Luke? Luke turned around and saw something unusual. The normally calm Walker was nervously fidgeting with his Korean War cap. Um, yeah, if it's quick, Luke said, sensing trouble. Real trouble. I wonder if we could do lunch in the food court today, then, Walker said. Uh, I suppose, Luke answered. Why? I mean, I brought my lunch from home today and want to save my money. Uh, lunch is on me, Walker said, scratching under his cap. What's this about? Luke asked. Walker clearly had something more in his mind than a casual lunch. Why didn't he just say it? It's about a friend of yours, Walker said. Lucas? Uh, no, Walker said. It's about Sylvanus Douglas. Who? Luke asked, quickly. Too quickly. I'm pretty sure you know him, Walker said. Well, you'd be wrong then, Luke said, increasing his pace. Never heard of him. Luke, Walker said in a firm but gentle tone. You've got nothing to fear for me, okay? I'm trying to help. Luke stopped and turned to Walker. You know what would help me? You leaving me alone so I can do my job. He turned to leave, but Walker grabbed his arm with surprising strength and spun Luke to face him so he could look into his eyes. You hate this job, Walker said, and I can understand why. But you're never ever going to be able to move on from this place so long as you keep putting up this front. I know you want to tell me. I can see it in your eyes. So, let's meet for lunch when we both have some more time. I can't do it, Luke said. Not here. You may or may not know this, but this mall's got cameras everywhere and... With audio? Besides the point, Luke said. He was about to lay into Walker, give it to him good for making assumptions about him, when suddenly he heard the voice. Tell him! He shook his head, baffling Walker, but the voice was more insistent. Tell him! After work! Do it! Sylvanus took a deep breath and stopped struggling to break free of Walker's grasp. He took his free hand and gently squeezed the hand Walker was using to hold Sylvanus's arm. Okay, Sylvanus said. I'll tell you all about my friend, but not here. I get off work at five. Will you be home? Absolutely, Walker said. Okay, I can be there by 5.30, Sylvanus said. Before we go any further with this, Jack, you have to promise me one thing. Sure, what is it? Whatever I tell you. Is for your ears only, Sylvanus said. Not a word gets out. Understood, Walker said, and finally let go of Sylvanus's arm. Now, Luke said, Mr. Walker, I've wasted enough of my time on this. With that, Luke turned and walked away from Walker, acting as though nothing in his life had just changed. Just an ordinary mall security guard doing his rounds. <laughs>